The tremors and upheavals of 2023 are meant to lead to a new birth, to renewal. So as we enter this year, 2024, what will this renewal look like? What will this new world look like? And we are very much participants, partners, in writing the script, the narrative, the choreography of this birth and renewal. So what will it look like? What should we be doing? How can we take the wars, the battles, the pain, the grief, the tragedy that marked 2023, especially the last quarter since October 7th, and turn it into a true rebirthing, a future that we can be proud of, that when time will tell the story and history will write the narrative, we'll be able to look back and say, the pain is a distant memory, but here's what we built. What should this world look like? What could this world look like? So please join me this important discussion that is vital for each one of us. 2024, birth and renewal. See it as a part two to last week's class, 2023, Tremors and Upheavals. Hi, Simon Jacobson. Happy New Year. As the New Year begins, let us talk about birth and renewal, following last week's tremors and upheavals, the birth and renewal of a new world. This program is dedicated by Gavriel Snyder in honor of the Yosef of Dvorah Rus, Bas Avram, with tremendous love from her family, children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. May her neshama have an aliyah on high. So, when there are tremors, when there are upheavals, when there are cracks, these are always signs of a new birthing, the cracks in the egg before the chick emerges, the deterioration or the erosion of the seed before it gives birth to a new sapling, the shedding of one layer of skin as we assume a new one. So, it could be painful, that transition period. It could be very painful, it could be less painful. But it's always going to be uncomfortable, because that's the whole point, to get out of the comfort zone of the past, to get into a new paradigm of the future. But, what is that supposed to look like? What will this new world look like? What should it look like? What could it look like? Because we need to know for ourselves, what are we supposed to be doing? It's one thing to say, okay, I'm somewhat comforted, if we can call it that. It's still very painful to see deaths of young people, innocent people. Anywhere, and especially our own brethren, and I speak now about Israel and the war in Gaza. 
But it's another to also know and be comforted that there is a future. It's leading somewhere. The question is, what is it leading to? That's what we shall be discussing now. Maybe a good place to begin is a very interesting Talmudic story that captures this, this two-phase narrative, if you wish. The tremors and upheaval part of it, and then the birth and renewal part. So Rabbi Akiva, maybe the greatest Talmudic sage of all, was together with his colleagues looking at the Temple Mount after the destruction of the Temple. It was bad times. And they were bemoaning, and they were in a very shaken state seeing such a powerful divine temple, a divine interface, a gate to heaven being completely destroyed. And they saw the fox running around in this desolate temple mount. Actually, when you look at it today, it is pretty much desolate, so maybe it's a little like what they saw. Obviously, there's some other things in the Temple Mount as well. But still, a lot of it, the first time you see it, some, some of it shakes you. Because it's like not a place that has become a, a city or anything like that. And maybe that's for the good. It remains somewhat of a wilderness. So Rabbi Akiva's colleagues began to cry. They began to cry, naturally. When you see such destruction, desolation, especially in contrast to what was once there, a glorious, not just a mansion, it was a divine temple, it was a place of, of divinity, of spirituality on earth, where heaven met earth. A kiss between matter and spirit. And Rabbi Kiva began to laugh. Which, of course, was also quite surprising. And the Talmud continues and explains that the student, the, the, his colleague said, we're crying because look, it's the fulfillment of all those tragic prophecies that when, the, when people will behave in ways that are not fitting to be an abode, a domain, a dwelling place for the divine, it's like children who are fighting, their father cannot come and be at their table. So they're crying. Why are you laughing? So Rabbi Kiva says, because if you continue the prophecy, it says that after the desolation will come the rebuilding of something far greater and eternal. And that's why I'm smiling, laughing. And the Talmud concludes, Akiva, you have comforted us. Akiva, you've comforted us. Now the obvious question is, did they not know that prophecy? The fact is they did accept it. They didn't argue. They didn't say, well, right now we're in the grieving state. They felt comforted and double comforted. So the answer lies in the different perspectives. Rabbi Akiva had a unique perspective that others did not have. He came from a world of darkness. Until he was 40 years old, we're told, he did not study any Torah. He was unaware. He must have been a brilliant man, but he was just not there. So he understood the world of, uh, let's call it, a world of a void, of desolation, spiritual desolation. It says that he was either the child of converts or he was actually a convert as well, which just would underscore that. So he understood a state where, you do, where you're lacking something. So he, of all people, appreciated the depth 
of the light that comes from the darkest places. And he could see it right now. That even though right now you see desolation, no, desolation is just a stepping stone. Most eyes can't see it, but he could see it. His colleagues were born in, in a spiritual state. They were more privileged. We call them more the tzaddik level. They always saw the light. So for them, as soon as you see darkness, what is this? Of course they knew the prophecies, but didn't feel it, didn't sense it. And when Rabbi Akiva told them with his heartfelt experience, from his heartfelt experience, then they said, you've comforted us. And twice comfort, comforted us, because the transformation of darkness to light is, is not just you comforted us at a just like light, it's even a deeper light. Or else it's not justified, it has to be transformed. But you see the two parts of every story, in both personal, collective, and collective. Both microcosm and macrocosm. Every tremor, every upheaval, every difficult situation is one part of the story. The second half is the light that leads us to. And the key is to see it through. So that tells us that there's those two stages. But what are we going to see? What are we building toward? What is this brighter future look like? So even though we're in the middle of the tremors and upheaval still, that doesn't mean we cannot envision. That doesn't mean we cannot dream. And I say dream, I don't just mean a dream of a distant future, but envision to the point where we can actualize some things that become so real to us that actualizing makes sense. So let's talk about the two states and see how birth and renewal emerges from the desolation, from the tremors and the upheavals. One of the things that you see that jumps out at us whenever there's war, whenever there's conflict, is that shocking reality that why can't we just live in peace? This small earth here is just one planet with all 8 billion of us. We all aspire, I would say more or less, but more aspire to finding happiness for ourselves, for our children. Yes, we may have different belief systems. We may even have disagreements. But how is it possible we can come to a point of hatred? And hatred that leads to true violence and bloodshed. And sometimes the most atrocious and savage ways as we've seen and witnessed and heard. The only answer to that is ultimately is because there's a concealment that doesn't allow us to see our integral connection. We are truly one. Like one organism. So imagine one part of the body decides to savagely beat, murder, rape, and mutilate another part of the body. What does that tell you? Not only does it sound insane, I'm not even using the word absurd, it sounds like unhealthy. Something's really wrong here. So that, of course, is the most extreme fashion when you see that type of abuse, that type of injustice, inhumanity that human beings can perpetrate against each other. But even on a subtle level, the fact that people feel that separation. So in the words of the, Kabbal, the great Kabbalist, Rabbi Isaac Luria, it's a result of the tzimtzum, the concealment of the divine unity, the all-encompassing seamless singularity of one true reality called the divine. Conceal that independent consciousness 
emerges, and there you have the potential, ultimately. The diversity has the potential to lead to, to tremendous divisiveness to the point even of the worst extremes as I just described. And I just described it mildly, and I've been getting into the details. So what is the, uh, the, uh, the, the diametric opposite of that is feeling and experiencing utter unity. Introducing into our lives the counterforce to that, to divisiveness, is unification. Which is why you find in mystical teachings and elaborated upon in Hasidic thought the concept of yichud, unity, unification. What is the most famous Hebrew prayer? Shema Yisrael. Hashem Alekeinu, Hashem Echad. The unity, Agdut. It's interesting, Echad is the same numerical equivalent as love. Thirteen. Aleph, Ches, is nine, plus four is thirteen. Same thing, Ava. Love and unity. An idea, that concept of attachment, of connection, of symbiosis, of synchronicity. Yes, many parts, but it's a harmony within the diversity as opposed to conflict resulting from the diversity. And that is the mission that we were charged with, to come into a world where that concealment can allow for divisiveness and not just not be divisive, but on the contrary, to recognize how the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, the synergy that we create on our personal lives, meaning firstly intrapersonal within yourself, a seamlessness instead of a conflict between your mind and your heart, between your beliefs and your actions, between your work and your home, and all the other psychological neuroses that, that fragments us. And then by extension, the unity that we experience with our immediate family unit, our spouse, our children, our parents, our siblings, and by extension, our community. And by further extension, like concentric circles, our town, our city, our state, our country, and then all countries. That's the story. It sounds simple on paper. The difficulty is doing it. So you see here two realities. They're two realities. And it's important to understand them. Because it's one thing to say, I'd love to have world peace. We'd love to have harmony. We'd love to have a world where everybody's just coexisting and beautiful. But it's another's to visualize it. And, and, and contrast helps tremendously. Which, I don't want to call it a blessing in disguise, but if there's anything that comes out of war and conflict, is it crystallizes the juxtaposition. You see how bad it could be, then you suddenly realize, one second. You know, when things seem undercover, you don't see the, the hatred, you don't see the distrust, you don't see all that human beings are potentially capable of doing in the worst possible way. So we can delude ourselves and be lulled into thinking, it's not that bad. Especially when you have material prosperity and all the comfort zones and security blankets, they create the illusion everything is fine. Suddenly you see an outbreak, you realize, one second, that didn't come from nowhere. 
It was always brewing under the surface. It wakes you up very quickly, a rude awakening. And that's the only gift that it offers us. The rude awakening that meant to say, okay, now you know the deep effect of the concealments and the deep hatreds that exist to the point of what it can achieve, what, what, what kind of destruction it can wreak. So do something about it. Don't just eliminate the negative. Repair it from the core by reintroducing, and I emphasize reintroducing, that inner unity that was always there as well. So envisioning a world that is permeated by that type of harmony is critical in building that type of world. Now, a lot has been talked lately about AI. It's one of the headlines of 2023, and surely will be also 2024. And the big debate, is AI good for us, not good for us? Will it ultimately lead to destruction? Will it ultimately lead to a better world? Will machines turn on us? What will happen with a human being? What will happen with jobs? So people, of course, see the benefits in it. can do certain things that just save us a lot of time, but what will we do with that extra time? So in this past year, 2023, I gave a few talks on the topic, with this key point being so connected to what we're saying here, it all depends on, our, on us. If we see ourselves as machines, then of course machines will outdo us. We'll be faster, more powerful, more accurate. But if we see ourselves as souls, not physical beings on a spiritual journey, but spiritual beings on a physical journey, we are the souls of existence. We can use a machine to be a utility. And we can even perhaps give part of our insight and even our spiritual insight into the AI. But at the end of the day, you have the soul. You're the mother. You're the father of your children. You're the nurturer. These are utilities. It's a very sophisticated tool chest AI provides us to the point that it can simulate intelligence. It's more than a hammer and a screwdriver. However, it all comes down to who we are. And that's the world we have to usher in to use the words of Isaiah the prophet, where there will be no more evil and destruction because the world will be filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea, with emphasis on divine, transcendent knowledge, not just knowledge that can be part of our own arrogance and used in ways that actually be very destructive. Case in point, look at what's going on in some of the universities, or many of them. That's supposed to be bastions and places of uh, towers of, of intelligence, of objective critical thinking, when it becomes embroiled in politics and actually a source of racism and so on, what does that tell you? That knowledge has been completely taken, been hijacked. Because it's lacking the divine, it's lacking the humility required in experience, the spiritual part of it. So the future is building a spiritual revolution. After the agricultural revolution, and then the industrial and then the computer revolution or information revolution, the final frontier is birthing and the renewal of a spiritual revolution. A world where spirit is more important than matter. What does that mean? That the purpose of your life is more important than what you do. Or I should say more important. It should be, it, that's the means and that's the end. The classic example I always give is I ask somebody, so who are you? 
and they give me their business card. I said, that's not who you are. That's what you do. And some people sigh and say, yeah, I've been doing it so long, that's who I've become. Who you are should define what you do, not what you do should define who you are. The spiritual revolution means it's a mission-centric life, not an existence-centric life. It's not your actions. It's not your behavior that defines who you are. Who you are should define your behavior. Think of a company. The company is being run not by its mission statement, but by whatever whim any worker, any employee, or anyone comes up with. It doesn't work that way. The captain tells the ship where to go. We've, we've lived too many years in an existential and survival mode. When I say survival, I don't mean necessarily bare minimum. It can be very, you can be very successful and very prosperous, but directionless. So all these tremors and upheavals are meant to wake us up. Let's get back our focus, our hub, the purpose of it all. The purpose is that your soul, with its unique skills, and its unique blessings should shine your unique light to your corner of this earth and by extension to everyone around you. Using technology, by all means, broadcast it, amplify it. The fact, the mere fact that people can use religion and faith to kill others tells you this tremendous distortion. This is not the knowledge of God. This is someone who's taking control. This is called idolatry. Instead of a God creating us in the divine image, we're creating a God in our image. And we're allowing our image in that situation to hijack God and use God for our own nefarious purposes. The first sign of a godly person, of a spiritual person, is humility. Humility means the ability to listen. The ability to realize that maybe you don't have it all figured out. That alone already allows you to come to a table and talk about things. Let alone not behave in ways that are savage and beyond savage. Or below savage even. So it's a time for a call to the entire world. And say, look what we've gone through. The world has gotten a lot better. There's no question about it. Less war, less violence, despite what we see. But these last tremors and upheavals, wherever they may be, are perhaps the last gasps of a world that, of dissonance that is not in touch with its purpose. So let's come, come out and say, as strong as the negative is there, let's come out with even a stronger call for a spiritual revolution to teach our children, why are you here? Teach your children from the youngest age not to hate a Jew or a black or a minority or anyone that's not like you, to teach the human being whoever it is, the little boy, the little girl. Why are you here? You were given a soul. You were sent to this world on a purpose and on a mission. Let's figure out what that is and let's live up to it. And that mission should be about bringing light and warmth to others. And if you see something wrong, something you disagree with, you have to find a way to inspire. You have to find a way to deal with it. Not to go to war with it, not to be violent, not to get angry but to use your passion and harness it toward positive ends. I know it sounds very simplistic and naive even, and idealistic, but that is the world we want. How do you think we're going to build the world we want if we don't envision it and then act on it? 
So yes, it begins with our children, because they begin, they are the future. If the children are taught the wrong way and are inculcated with all kinds of dogma and stereotypes and negative feelings, of course they'll turn into destructive adults. Not everyone, but potentially. As, as Frederick Douglass said, it's infinitely easier, I'm paraphrasing, to bring up a healthy child than to fix a broken adult. But it doesn't stop with the children. It stops with us because at the end of the day, the children, whether we like it or not, are influenced by their parents, by the adults. It begins with us adults, the same thing. Yes, we have our media, we have our entertainment, we have our travel. We have so many delights and so many pleasures to indulge in in this world, so many options. But why are you here? This is the time to discover why are you here? The rest are the means. That's the end. And again, you're here to serve. You're here to fulfill something greater than yourself. It's not just I'm here to enjoy the party. You should have all the parties in the world and all the pleasures, and God should bless each person in this new year with health and wealth and abundance materially, but above all spiritually. Focus. That whatever you're given with, whatever you're blessed with, whatever you've been given, bestowed, bestowed, you've been blessed with, should be used toward a higher divine purpose, filling the world with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. I know it sounds very broad, but it starts in your own life. The knowledge you have, the experience you have, the people you know, the talents you have, everything about you, your personality, is it being directed to some higher purpose? And that higher purpose is to make the world a little better place than it was before you came there. And that comes down to, as I often speak about, immersing your soul in a spiritual spa on a daily basis. Spa, acronym, study, prayer, action. The three pillars of cognitive conditioning, emotional conditioning, and behavioral conditioning. Get your mind in the right place. Every day, the earlier the better, study something spiritual. Something that gets your mind out of the marketplace, out of the news, out of the immediate hoo-ha, roller coaster, and murmuring around of life, rat race of life, whatever words you want to use, and get your mind into a purer place to contemplate on a better world, a higher world. Learn something that has a divine, a sublime quality. Every morning I teach a class it's a deep class on, on, on a deep esoteric text called Ayin Beis. You can't imagine how cleansing it is, how refreshing it is, because it gets your mind into a whole different world. You talk about the cosmos, about purpose, about things that are beyond the here and now of time and space as we know it. Second, prayer, a poem, a song, emotional conditioning. And finally, behavioral conditioning, acts of goodness and kindness. Even if you do it already, increase. Get out of your comfort zone. Do a little more in an act of charity, a kind word, a gesture. Share a beautiful thought that comes your way via email, social media. So easy to do. Press of a button. Who knows how many people you can reach. The key is to be deliberate, to be proactive, to initiate. Not to wait and say, oh, 
When someone else will do something, I'll react. Now you want to be proactive, not reactive. That's how a soul thinks. It's essentially soul think. Soul-centric life. Mission-centric life. Versus body-centric. Need-driven. Purpose-driven instead of need-driven. Need-driven, I should say. So this is something that really requires an attitude. And you build a big, better world when you build your own better world. Each of us is a world in microcosm. Yes, it's beautiful to do big, big activities that help millions of people or thousands of people. But it all begins with you, the battle within yourself. Which voice will prevail? So when we're faced with these two perspectives, Rabbi Akiva and his colleagues, you can look at the immediate events and say, Oy vey, what will be? Or you can look like a leader at it and say, no, this is a stepping stone. This is a wake-up call. This is a time not to just wring our hands in resignation or despair, but rather to lift our hands and say, here's what we can do to make our lives better. And every act changes the course of history. Every good deed, every good word, every good thought tips the scales and brings personal and global redemption. So essentially, it's two perspectives, two paradigms. The paradigm of dissonance, of displacement, and the paradigm of redemption, of unity. And there's so many ways this can manifest. So as we enter 2024, let us embrace that visionary approach. Let us build, yes, birth and renewal. A new birthing, a new renewal, beginning with ourselves, beginning with our attitudes, our minds, our hearts, our actions. And share that with others. Inspire others. Get others to think and feel and act the same way. That they initiate. Not just that you're initiating and they're receiving. Let them also be givers. Imagine all of us, the ripple effect of creating givers, creating more givers. A flame lighting another flame, lighting another flame. All of us are flames that give off light and warmth and clarity and direction. That's how we build a better world. And when we are uncomfortable and when we see tremors and we see things that are, that are unsettling and disruptive, that gets us going. Because that's the wake-up call. You can't take it for granted. It tells you something must be done. Now, as time passes, usually that type of inspiration dissipates. That's why we're here to remind each other. That's why we're here to wake each other up. And that's why we're here to talk to each other. I speak with you, and I hope you speak back to me. We keep each other warm and inspired and driven. So may this be indeed a blessed year, a blessed year of birth and renewal on all levels, personally and collectively and globally, world of pe- a world of peace, world of happiness for all people, harmony within the diversity. And it all begins that we don't allow ourselves to get trapped because either you're part of the problem or you're part of the solution. Be part of the solution. 
Simon Jacobson here, thank you. Meaningfullife.com. Please subscribe to our growing YouTube channel as well as to our other offerings that we have at meaningfullife.com. Slash subscribe and you can check out a wide array of different materials that we offer and constantly renew and update literally on a daily basis. Please share. And I'd love to hear your thoughts and feedbacks and comments. Let's have this dialogue going and let us all be that proactive force because what you can accomplish in this world, only you can accomplish. Be blessed and be well. Thank you. This program is brought to you by the Meaningful Life Center. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at MeaningfulLife.com donate.